Those principles are key. And I want us to look at this commandment in that way to help us avoid conjuring up things that God didn't mean. Because when he's trying to reveal who he is, we need to hear exactly what he's saying and what he means. It's extremely important. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we read the passage. Heavenly Father, illuminate in our hearts and minds today what you truly mean in your word. Show us who you are. We want to be influenced by your personality. Who are you? Let us see you, Lord. Shine the light of your truth in the dark places in our hearts and eradicate from our lives those means by which we reflect you incorrectly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of my sermon uh, this morning is Unimaginable and Unrivaled. That's what God is trying to say, I believe, in the second commandment. He is unimaginable and he is unrivaled. The main idea that I want to get across is that God will not be replaced or redefined by our imagination. We must submit our intellect to him. Any attempt to own who he is and contain it within our own mind and ability to understand is idolatry. I want to support uh, that main idea uh, with three points. God's true nature. And keeping in mind... These commandments, the Ten Commandments, and the hundreds that follow the Ten Commandments, there's so many of them. The Ten are the primary that we've identified. These commandments are meant to reveal what God is like. What is God like? Who is he? God's true nature is revealed through, verse 4, the proper method of worship, and in verse 5, the consequences of improper worship, And in verse 6, the benefits of proper worship. We learn who God is in all three of those aspects. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 through 6 says, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is a difficult message, actually, to preach because it's kind of heavy. <laughs> it's, it is really heavy, but, but there's good news at the end, so just uh, stick with me. I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just trying to be uh, faithful to what the Bible says. 
God's true nature is, first of all, revealed through the proper method of worship. When God says, you shall not make for yourself, and describing anything that is in our known universe, don't make for yourself. The message to the original audience seems evident, doesn't it? Seems obvious. Do not make idols and worship them. But we've already established that we're not making any. I mean, I whittled out some things before, but I didn't worship it. So what principles can span the distance between what God said then and how we live now? The modern mind has a misconception of what idol worship entailed. It's not so simple. We seem to have the idea that it was just simply based in ignorance And since we are more enlightened, more intelligent, we do not involve ourselves in the uninformed practices of idolatry. But that's just simply not the case. In some ways, I believe we're not as intelligent as they were. We're standing on the shoulders of giants who have discovered all these things. And I think all of our devices of technology are dumbing us down. So it's not really true that they were just ignorant. And I think we're going to discover that if it's true of them, then it's doubly true of us today. In order for us to apply the passage to our situation, we need to understand exactly what was being forbidden and why. What is so bad about carving a figure to adore it? If in fact... The figure has no power and will finally amount to nothing. Because that's what the Bible says. Worthless and powerless, these idols. So what is the big deal? Maybe we're missing something. Maybe we're missing something that went without being said then. And that's why it was just said so simply. But it doesn't go without being said today. So we need to dig into exactly what God was forbidding and why. One commentator detailed nine characteristics of idolatry in the ancient world. Now I know, you know, when I'm sitting out there, I love it. I just love it when the guy says nine or 10. I should make it 11. <laughs> so I'm like, Lord, give me strength. He's going to go through nine things. <laughs> But it's okay. Um, Hopefully I'm going to get through them, okay? So (laughs) I'm trying to think of something else that's funny because it's going to get heavy. (laughs) Okay? When God says that we shall not make for ourselves any graven images, he is revealing himself in contrast to idolatry. Do not make for yourselves. Because I'm not like that. That's what God is saying. We're not to worship as idolaters worship because God is not like them. And he refuses to be worshipped in that way. And that's what he's saying. So we need to really dig into exactly what is idolatry. 
So the first characteristic I want to talk about was this idea of being guaranteed. There was a guarantee for the worshiper in, in, idolat- in idolatrous worship. Anxious assumed that the presence of a god or goddess was guaranteed by the presence of the idol that I'm holding, that I made. Since the idol partook of the very essence of the divinity it was designed to represent. So, for example, a statue of a given god was carved, certain rituals or incantations spoken over the statue, and the essence of the god entered into the statue was believed to be a functioning conduit. Like they're speaking into the camera. The God is there. This functioning uh, conduit allowed the worshiper to interact with the God and manipulate the God. The worshiper had guaranteed possession of that God. Yahweh, however, cannot be possessed. Because he maintains ownership of all creation. God is the owner. He owns us. And hopefully, he possesses you. We can't grab him, but he will grab us in the right conditions. How many of us, I wonder how many to apply it to our world are relying on a formulaic incantation of a prayer as a guarantee that God must do something because I said it. God must not do anything but what God says he will do. We cannot speak him into action as if we are controlling him or possessing him. Spoken words don't save us. God saves us. And reliance on a prayer to force God's hand is like idolatry. We cannot simply say the magic words. It's a relationship. God will save you. But not just because you said, I believe in Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Did you submit to him? Did you repent? See, all these things matter. Don't rely on the magic words. No matter what your parents say, no matter what the pastor says, God saves us. Only God. Salvation is in him alone, and that's all. And that's why he's trying to reveal himself to us. So that we can know him, not just say a prayer, to control him and guarantee. Now, salvation is guaranteed, but by him, not by you. You don't guarantee salvation. I don't guarantee it for myself. God guarantees it. Idolatry is also selfish. Idolatry was an entire materialistic system of thinking and behavior, sometimes called the fertility cult. This is a very selfish uh, aspect. 
It's built on the idea that gods could do virtually anything except feed themselves. This is idolatry. The one advantage that humans had over gods was the ability to feed them. We feed the gods. And it was felt that if one fed a given god, that god was in turn obligated to use his power to bless you. And uh, not much else was required. If you fed the god adequately, that god would, in quid pro quo fashion, he would bless you. And I wonder today, who may be here out of a sense of obligation? Are we attempting to feed God for the quid pro quo? A means of enticing God to bless us? But God has no needs, and he cannot be manipulated. We can't feed God. There's nothing we have. We have nothing to give him. He's the giver. That's what Paul said. Uh, Let me see if I can. Paul said in his uh, sermon in Acts 19, talking to I'm sorry, it's in Acts 17. His address at the uh, Areopagus. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, is verse 24, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We have nothing to give him. He can't be manipulated like the idols. Idol worship was also easy. Now, we're trying to figure out exactly what was being prohibited, right, with all these characteristics. But it it was also easy. Frequency and generosity of worship were the sole significant requirements of faithful idolatrous religion. Idolatry minimize the importance of ethical behavior. There was nothing really ethical about it. Ritual provisions of food to the gods was important, but keeping a divinely revealed covenant was not important. At Sinai, the Israelites took upon themselves the obligation to live as a holy people, subjecting themselves to obedience to not 10 commandments, but hundreds, like I said before hundreds of commandments to be, to obey. Why? So as to conform their lives ethically to Yahweh's will, God changes us. A contrast to idolatry was easy, requiring sacrifices, but little else. It's easy. Today, we kind of make it easy easy to follow Jesus. That's, that's kind of a prevailing message. He'll give you happiness and joy and peace like the video we watched in our home group last night. It's easy. Following Christ is not easy, not according to Jesus himself. 
I mean, if we're going to follow someone, we should maybe listen to him. What he said about it. He says in Matthew 16 and 24 through 25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It doesn't sound easy. The disciples understood exactly what that meant. And we've kind of twisted the words even here a little bit. We have crosses everywhere and and they're like, it's like, uh, it's like a happy symbol. But when Jesus said this to the disciples, what they heard was take up your instrument of torture and death and follow me. It's not easy. In fact, if it's easy, you're not doing it right. Maybe you make a lot of money here in the UAE. Most people come here to do just that. And you think uh, giving money generously is your responsibility, sole requirement. But that's easy, and that's idolatry. Just like idolatry. It's also convenient. I know it's getting heavy. I mean, like, but it gets worse. (laughs) But then it gets better. (laughs) Okay. Idolatry was also convenient. Very convenient. First Kings 14, 23 says that Israelite idolaters set up for themselves high places. uh, And sacred stones and Asherah poles. On every high hill and under every spreading tree. And the pervasive idol shrines allowed worshipers to take sacrifice uh, to their god or goddess virtually any time of the day. Any time. Any place. Any day of the week. Sound familiar? Sounds familiar to me. I mean, it seems like something I see a lot. I mean, here. But before we uh, point any fingers at our host uh, country and their practices, how convenient do we expect our service to be? In the right place, the right time, the right temperature, the right music, comfortable message. Conveniently fitting worship into our schedule. But doesn't that look like idolatry? Isn't that like the same thing that they were doing? We're trying to conveniently fit it in to everything else we're doing. God is inconvenient because of our fallen nature. He's demanding. He's immovable. He's uncompromising. We may not like that about God, but it really doesn't matter what we like. The only thing that really matters is what is God like. And we have to submit to that. But idolatry puts up these barriers to knowing him for who he truly is. And that's why he says you shall not make for yourselves. Idolatry was also normal. I'm not going to get through the nine. I can see that. 
is a common way of religion, without exception, outside of Israel, in the ancient world. Everyone was doing it this way. It made it seem entirely normal. Everyone worshipped. Everyone was religious. Everyone did it a particular way. It's very normal. It was also the way of the superpowers and the economically successful. It kind of put a stamp of approval on it. Those in power are doing it this way. How important is it for us to blend in and be accepted according to social norms? God is not normal. Are you okay with being a Jesus freak? Do you speak his name in honor when others speak it in a degrading fashion? Even if they call you a Jesus freak? If you're not okay with being a Jesus freak, you're participating in idolatry. God is holy. He's set apart. And he requires the same thing from his people. It is our one job. You got one job. Represent me correctly. Everything else is on me. God says... I've got everything else. Just represent me correctly. And I will not tolerate anything less. That's what God says. Idolatry was logical, polytheistic, syncretistic, and pantheistic. It's big words. This just means there's a lot of gods, and you can blend them all together and share what they do. Because yours isn't better than mine and, you know, we'll just adapt your stuff into my way and my stuff into your way, syncretistic. And it's also pantheistic. Nature is God. That was idolatry. It's very logical. It makes sense, doesn't it? On the surface, it makes a lot of sense. Ancient people also believed in three categories of gods. The personal God, the family God, and the national God. All these categories. No Israelite, no matter how totally immersed in idolatry they were, would ever answer no to this question. Do you believe in Yahweh? Of course, they had a category for him. He's the national God. He's the one we call on when it really gets serious. And a war. Oh yeah, Yahweh. We forgot about him. But in their day-to-day loyalty and worship, It would be directed toward the various idols representing their various categories of life. Is is God just, you know, is he just, you know, is just the one you come and worship on Friday? I mean, what happens the rest of the week? What idols are out there? I don't want to go through them, but you know, what's going on at work, at school, and in your leisure time? seems like idolatry. It resembles it. See, this is what God is really getting at when he says, make for yourself any graven image. He wants everything and he settles for nothing less. He's not having anything else. God will not accept a categorical position. That's idolatry. He demands complete surrender in every aspect of life. He's an all or none God. You're either all in or you're out. You cannot serve God and anything else. 
Jesus said, and mammon. It's harsh. That's harsh, but that's, that's who God is. We have to see him for who he actually is, not who we want him to be, because we're just carving out an image. If we try to fit him into what we want. Idolatry was also pleasing to the senses. Worshippers made images of the divinity that was pleasing to the eyes. And it spawned uh, the whole industry that was entrenched in idolatry. Acts chapter 19 is a first century exact replica of what I'm talking about here. Where the silversmith got together all the craftsmen and said, Hey, Artemis is our God and they're, you know, Paul is, he's, he's ruining our business. And we make money at this. And also, if Artemis, uh, his temple is destroyed, then how are we going to make money? And what about her glorification? But really, it was about money. It's hard to appreciate the beauty of a God who refuses to be seen. But that's Yahweh. So we, we, can't, we can't change him. He's God. He says the way it works, and he refuses to be seen. That's just, that's who he is. We, we need to accept that. God reveals himself to the extent he chooses and on the terms that he chooses. But thank God, thank you, Lord, that you do reveal yourself. Otherwise, we are trapped in our own idolatrous inclinations. Thank God that he reveals himself. Folks in Acts, they loved their guard Artemis. He was, uh, she was, Artemis was a goddess. She was pleasing, suitable, and profitable because they had fashioned her particularly for that reason. God is not like that. God is an affront and a rebuke to our senses. We don't like it. Every theophany or encounter with God that we see in scripture is a terrifying experience. They don't really, they're not really enjoying themselves. An encounter with the true and living God does strike terror in the human heart. As we see throughout scripture, Isaiah, who's declared himself, when he had the vision of God and he said, holy, holy, holy. He said, I'm undone. I'm like a dead man. This is an encounter with God. It's not really comfortable. God is who he says he is. Anyone who has not been cast down into mourning and repentance because of their condition has never encountered God. Not according to the Bible. I'm not judging anyone because I don't know you individually. I'm saying that if you have not been cast down into repentance and loathing of yourself because of who you see God to be, then you've never met him. You've never encountered the penetrating fire of God's true character. But you've set up idols that you like 
We take little pieces here and there, little Bible verses, and we build a Frankenstein version of Jesus that we like and we hug him and say, I love Jesus. But is that Jesus? Many have rejected God in favor of exposure only to idols that they have fashioned to please their flesh. Idolatry was also indulgent, but I can't go into details here. I'll just say this. Many today uh, claim a freedom in Christ as a license for indulgence. But Paul said in Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answers as a rhetorical question. He answers it by no means. Relying on so-called freedom in Christ to indulge the appetites of our flesh is evidence of idolatry. It was also erotic. Temple prostitution is described at various points in the Old Testament. And the details that I read on this, I will not, I will not uh, share with you today. But it was ridiculous. Okay? Ritual sex was performed in order to motivate the gods to produce fertility on earth. Eroticism, though, is just a sensual manifestation of pure selfishness. The opposite of God. God suffers for our benefit. Pornography and other forms of eroticism reveals a willingness to visit misery and suffering on others for one's own pleasure. Jesus sacrificed himself for others. Eroticism sacrifices others for myself. Anyone engaging with pornography, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, or other forms of sexual perversion are idolaters. It's just plain and simple. That is, eroticism was, was so much a part of idolatry in that day. How do we relate it to our day? The common thing connecting all these characteristics is that idols are made by humans for humans. And they're aimed at either replacing God or redefining God. But what does all that have to do with interpreting the Bible (laughs) that I started with, interpreting the Bible? Erroneous interpretations of God's self-revelation, the Bible, conjure the Jesus we want instead of the Jesus who is. We must approach God's revelation from underneath in submission Your emotion, your intellect, everything about you must be submitted to God in his revelation. That's the position from which God will illuminate your understanding of who he is. He doesn't reveal himself to those who refuse. We sometimes want Christians, we want homosexuals to be punished. Romans chapter 1 that John read for us says clearly that the darkened state of their mind that refuses to set God for who he is that led to their homosexuality is the punishment. What further punishment do we want? Don't judge them. I mean, let's expose God for who he is. Imagine the horror and the nightmare scenario of finally coming face to face with Jesus only to discover that he's not who we imagined him to be. 
because he is unimaginable. We have to submit ourselves to who he is expressing himself to be. And even then, we can't totally know him. He's just revealing what we need, what he wants us to know. In that scenario, God will say to us, depart from me. And y'all know what the other part was, right? What does he say then? I never knew you, which also means you never knew me. Be careful how we interpret the scripture. Be very careful what we say about what it says. We're not allowed. We don't have the authority to say this is what it means to me. It means what it means. And it can apply to a lot of situations, yes. But it only means one thing. And that's God is revealing himself. If you allow it to mean something just for you, then that's your Jesus. And Jesus will say, that wasn't me. That's just the one you wanted to make in your mind, in your imagination. But God cannot be imagined that way. A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, a God begotten in the shadows of the fallen heart will quite naturally be no true likeness of the true God. He's unimaginable. Because our, our condition is a barricade. God wants us to know him. And that's the point of these commandments. He's revealing himself. But God is not like at all what we conjure in our imagination as revealed through this idolatry. Idolatry was people conjuring him. He is not like the idols we create. God's true nature is also revealed. And I'll move through these next two points quickly. The consequences of improper worship. Verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third, the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, uh, I've approached these words from every direction. And, you know, I'm I'm trying to fit God into my understanding, and he he doesn't fit. I have to let it say what it says. It's hard. It It says some hard things. What it plainly means is that God will punish you for misrepresenting him. God will punish me today in this life. This punishment is not for the world. It's for his covenant people. Who, have, who are responsible to demonstrate to the world who he is. And if we misrepresent him, God will punish you. Not only you, your children, and their children, and their children. It's plain. I can't make it say something else. It just says it. Idolatry is not private. It affects the people you love. The descendants here are not innocents. They're being punished for the idolatry that they inherited, but God will still punish them for that idolatry also. What idolatry are we passing to our children? God does not tolerate rivals, especially the ones among his own people. 
And this is evidence of it. This is who he is. He's telling us who he is. I will not tolerate any rivals, even the ones you conjured in your mind. And why? These rivals are not actual challengers who pose a threat to God. He wins. Scripture tells us this. God wins. These idols are worthless and powerless. So why does God need to defend himself? What is at stake? Why must he punish to protect his image? He wins. One commentator said, God is jealous for the truth of his own nature. God is jealous for the character of his people. God is jealous for the influence of his people upon the world. And that is the point. In his book, The Deliberate Church, Mark Dever expresses the essentials of of evangelism as God, man, Christ response. And this is just his display of what evangelism is. God, man, Christ response. If you don't know God, you're lost at the beginning. And then you need to understand who you are. And then you can understand who Christ is. And then comes a response, a correct response. We must have true knowledge of God ourselves and Christ in order to respond correctly. And the knowledge of God is essential and primary for salvation because salvation cannot be found in another. The Lord is our salvation. We just sang it. Glory to God. Glory to the Father. Glory to God the Son. Glory to God the Spirit. The Lord is our salvation. That's why he needs to be glorified. Salvation can be found in no other. God, as the only source of salvation, is a jealous defender of his name. And that defending is a means of protecting salvation. He doesn't need protecting. We do. God punishes to protect salvation. God punishes for the sake of humanity. God's true nature revealed through the consequences of improper worship. God, through this punishment, is trying to ensure that salvation is available. Because if you don't know God, you cannot be saved. God's true nature is also revealed through the benefits of proper worship. God says in verse 6 that he will be faithful. Verse 6 says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The most likely referent of thousands is referenced back to generations so that thousands of generations are blessed as a result of true and proper worship. Thousands blessed Thousands of generations blessed by God's true nature being revealed through true worship. God wants to use us to reveal himself by worshiping him properly. Notice the inseparable relationship between love and obedience. They go together. As Jesus later reminds us in in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love and obedience, they're inseparable. You can't disobey and love. In the New American Commentary on Exodus, Douglas Stewart says, 
By the greatest numerical contrast in the Bible, God identified eloquently his real desire. He's, a, he's showing who he is, really, in this last piece of this commandment. And that desire is to have his people remain loyal forever so that he might in turn show them the rich blessings of his resulting loyalty to them. God loves us. And everything that he does is an expression of that, even when sometimes it seems like it's a discipline that comes from a harshness. But God must protect his image for our own salvation, for the salvation of generations to come. And he will punish us for misrepresenting him because we are obscuring in that, in that improper worship the true and a good view to who God is. And God will punish for the, for the sake of others that we are leading astray. The message of this passage is not literal numbers, three to four generations and thousands, but rather what is implied is in the contrast. By the greatest numerical contrast in the Bible, God is expressing his love and mercy. Three to four, thousands. God loves us. God's great love is revealed in the contrast and and his eternal blessings are implied in the contrast of those numbers. God loves us. And his command is to save us. He's not commanding to control us in particular. Overall, what God is trying to do is make himself known so that by him being known, the world can be saved. In conclusion, I'm just going to read this passage in uh, 1 John. These few verses. The Apostle John warns us in 1 John 2 and 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. That's idolatry. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. And will you continue, Lord, even though in our rebellion, we have shielded your true nature from others by improper worship. Shine the light of your truth into our hearts and eradicate from our lives idolatry and help us, Lord, to worship you in truth, to know you, to be more like you so that others may know you also. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.